Welcome to the Illuminated Word Podcast. In this podcast, we take a reading from Scripture each day. We look at the background material to that passage and also application for us. Once again, welcome to the Illuminated Word Podcast. Welcome to the Illuminated Word. My name is Devin Morris, and today our text comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 66. It's Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 66. I'll go ahead and read from the English Standard Version to get us started, and then we can get into the text. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted them to be called, him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all of their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard him laid them on... And all who heard them, that is the words that were spoken, laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Elizabeth's narrative, uh, birth narrative, picks up from chapter 1 and verse 25. Luke has done a pretty interesting thing here. Not only has he recorded the birth narratives of John the Baptist and Jesus, which the other three Gospels do not give us, but he uh, goes back and forth between the two from you know, Elizabeth to Mary to Elizabeth to Mary, and then um, changes it up a little bit where you have a blessing from Zechariah first and then um, a, a blessing um, or Mary's Magnificat that comes afterwards. So it's really cool, and this is a Hebraic style is what some scholars have picked up on. Uh, I think people really like to emphasize Luke's uh, Hebrew Aramaic kind of background to his Greek text, which is important because it kind of shows who Luke's uh, sources were. That's always a big topic in Luke's work because in the first four verses of his gospel, he talks about that he's pulled from a lot of different sources. Well, clearly he has some Hebrew Aramaic sources that he's using, whether just oral accounts or written accounts, whatever the case is. Um, I think there's some evidence of both. I think what's also interesting to think about, which plenty of people have pointed this out, but I don't think it's talked about a lot, is that the fact that Luke has the birth narratives, you know, you got to ask yourself the question, well, whose testimony is this then? Um, the fact that Mary's seems a bit more intimate than Elizabeth's account, uh, I know James Edwards points out in his commentary that it's, it's not a crazy idea to consider that Mary is his actual uh, source for the story. And that's, for, for me, that's like a really cool thought to think that Mary, the mother of Jesus, gives Luke this account, or at least passes this on for Luke to record. And um, here we have it. So he uh, also, Luke, is, uh, continues to compare Elizabeth to like a type of Rebecca. Back in verse 41, he had uh, kind of made this comparison between the the child and in her to the child, to the children that were in Rebecca, that is Jacob and Esau. And then you get this... Um, other reference to Jacob and Esau in the the, the fulfillment of time, 
which is similar to the words that are spoken about Rebecca. So in verse 57, you have a pretty uh, interesting, significant phrase in that um, in the English it comes across as the time came, literally. Uh, in the Greek it is, and it was fulfilled, the time. And so it's meant to emphasize the fulfillment. That's why it's placed before time in the Greek. And it's also this this aorist passive. So it's something that's happened, something that's occurred. And, and normally when you have these passive verbs with no explicit object, which time is explicit here, but you have what's called the divine passive where God is accomplishing things through the fulfillment of time. So we, we, we're going to see that, I mean, throughout the book of Luke and um and even Acts, if we're considering Luke and Acts as one work, which I personally do, is that the fulfillment of time is a really big theme throughout both both books. Particularly, there are four big topics that deal with fulfillment. There is the fulfillment of Christology, like who Christ is, the things that he accomplishes, and those the fulfillment of those things. There is a fulfillment of repentance, something that's talked about over and over again in the Old Testament that's going to happen under the New Covenant. You have a fulfillment of the Israelite rejection and Gentile inclusion, which Paul picks up a whole lot, but it's in Luke and Acts uh, many times as well, especially in, in the book of Acts. And then you have this fulfillment of this more eschatological fulfillment that justice will finally come at the end. So these four big ideas that are going to be fulfilled that Luke and Acts likes to, to talk about. And again, this phrase, uh, ha chronos, is the, the fulfillment of time, or fulfillment, it is fulfilled, the time. It's comparable to Mary's birth uh, account, and in, in, in explicitly it says it's the same way in chapter 2 and verse 6. And then Paul has a similar comment in Galatians 4, 6, about these births being the fulfillment. It's like, hey, this is what we were all waiting for. It's finally here. All these promises are being fulfilled. So a little bit about more about our text and what's happening here. Um, it's interesting, you know, we get in the very, the, the second verse of, of our section at least. Everyone is excited. Everyone is happy to hear what's happened, what is going to happen, what is what is happening with Elizabeth. And it goes on to kind of fulfill some Old Testament about he will bring joy to the world. You know, we're seeing a little bit of that here with the neighbors and relatives rejoicing, hearing what God has is doing for Zechariah and Elizabeth. Because remember, they're really old; they're they're extremely old. Should not be able to have a kid at this point, but they do. And so, this is a, a great mercy showed upon Elizabeth, who at one point was thought to be barren. But the same people who rejoice in the birth of John and God's blessing to Elizabeth aren't even willing to hear her out when she wants to name her child. Really odd, but that is very typical Jewish fashion. You know, they're, they're not going, going to really um, take the woman's word here. Uh, they're, they're instead going to go to Zechariah and get his opinion um, because it was Jewish, and you know, under Jewish culture, not that it had to be done, but it was very common, is that you're going to name the child after the grandfather. Uh, so clearly there's some confusion here. Why name them John? Because that's not... The grandfather's name, even though the grandfather's name is not mentioned, they instead reference, well, why aren't you naming him Zechariah? And so people have speculated about this, well, because it's not normal to name your child after the father, you name him after the grandfather. But it could be, because Zechariah was so old, he in some ways is considered the grandfather 
uh, you know, the, the, the wise patriarch of the family. And, well, he doesn't have kids, so he's not even really, there's not really even a family yet. But there, anyway, you can see how there's, it, it's confusing. The whole situation is confusing. Why name him, uh, give him a name that's outside the family? Because um, naming a child, uh, even at the circumcision, at this late in time, was another oddity. This isn't really uh, heard of. We see it a little bit in the Talmud, but that's not, you know, until like the third century. So this is the earliest mention, earliest uh, attestation to a, a Jew naming a child not at birth, but waiting until the day of circumcision. Because Hellenistic practice was to wait a couple days, so maybe there is some influence there by their culture. Instead of naming a child at birth, or they're waiting a couple days, waiting until circumcision. That's all possible. It's important to kind of pick up here on, on verse 59 too, is there's a a past tense being used when they say, and they had been calling him. They were calling him. ESV doesn't pick that up quite right. They were calling him Zechariah. So it may be a thing where uh, because Zechariah wasn't able to name him at birth, everyone just started calling the child Zechariah anyway. And that's why when you get down to when they come to ask Zechariah what the child's name is, he gives this more emphatic, it's a present tense verb, his name is John. You may have been calling him this, but his name is actually John. And so it's at Zachariah's confession of the true name of his son that his mouth is opened and his tongue loosed. So that's a pretty cool um, you know, a sequence of events that happen there. Uh, we should remember, you know, circumcision, there's some probably importance to why that's being mentioned here. Circumcision is a sign and condition and part excellence of the covenant between Abraham and God. It's so important. It's one of the few activities that's actually allowed on the Sabbath. It could it could be performed by anyone, uh, man or woman, though it was normally performed by a high priest who is trained in the operation. In the Old Testament, it's interesting, doesn't really spell out specifically why this particular th- action, circumcision, becomes the sign of the circum uh, becomes a sign of the covenant. It it just is. Most likely, it has to do with paganism. In paganism, as we're probably all kind of familiar with, sex was the means to access divine powers and properties. So um, that's why you have a lot of depiction of genitals and, and sexual organs in the ancient Near East because they're not necessarily trying to be overtly grotesque. Those, in in some ways, are divine symbols because it is through the act of sex that you can communicate with your God or offer a sacrifice to your God, uh, a very you know crazy way of, of, of doing things, which our culture isn't far removed from that now. We idolize sex in, in a lot of the same ways. Not in Israel. Israel was a people of God who recognized even their sexuality belonged to God. Um, so it's, it's pretty interesting to think about. Uh, Peter Lightheart is one of my favorite theologians. He has a book called Delivered from the Elements of the World. And in this book, he has a fairly lengthy chapter dedicated to circumcision. And he draws out some really powerful theological implications of that. That would be great to, to talk about sometime. The word, we have a couple of words that are, are worth looking at too. 
um, in verse 65, when fear came on all their neighbors. Fear may be better translated here as awe, as is regularly, it's the word regularly used when you're trying to describe like this reaction of fear and reverence that often befall humans when they are in the presence and the imminence of the spiritual world. You have people falling to, to, you know, different angels' feet and, and, and things like this. And it always uses the same word, phobos. It's it's fear. Uh, but I think maybe a better English way of saying it would be awe. There is this, not necessarily, I'm scared you're going to hurt me, but it's this, oh my goodness, I am I am standing in the presence of goodness. And, and so it's um, kind of this awe factor. Astonished is a word that's being used here too. And it's um, in relation to how the people are reacting to Zechariah's miracle that's taking place here. And so it uh, it says that they are um, astonished. And that's a way to say it. It, it. This word is usually always used positively, um, and but it doesn't necessarily um, denote conversion, right? So this happens plenty of times throughout Scripture. You have people who have these great reactions to what God is doing. Nebuchadnezzar is one that we've recently looked at in Daniel, who has great reactions to what God does. Well, you know, maybe even confess that God is the one and only God, but does that actually translate into humility and obedience? That's usually not the case. And so this word doesn't necessarily imply that. We don't know if these people actually turn to God in repentance and humility, but they do, they at least recognize what's happened here with Zechariah. And they laid them on their hearts, these things that were being said and the things that they witnessed here with Zechariah. That's a really good Hebraism, a Hebrew idiom. That just means that they took the words and, and, and thought on them, meditated on them. We're going to see something similar with Mary later on in, in the story of Jesus as well. And the reaction is not, oh, things have, this is the fulfillment of everything. It's like a fulfilling of the beginning because it doesn't leave them with these, um, you know, f- solid statements of what's going to happen and, 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 and things like that. They end up asking themselves the question, well, what will this child be? There's kind of this open-ended mystery now. These births have been so peculiar. Well, they haven't seen quite how peculiar Jesus' birth is, but at least the pregnancies and now the birth of John the Baptist have been so peculiar. What's going to happen with these children? Um, It's a great way to leave off. David's going to pick us up tomorrow with Zechariah's prophecy, and that'll be a good way to, to keep things rolling here. I pray that you're looking for ways to love and serve your neighbor in genuine and sincere ways. Peace and love.